Have you ever started something with great enthusiasm but failed to go through with it? One of my wife Kirsty's love languages, in other words, one of the things that makes her feel loved, is words of affirmation. She thrives on encouraging words from others, and so you'd think her husband of 35 years would have learned this long ago and got it down to a fine art. But if so, you'd be wrong. I've often written about this in my journal. I've sometimes prayed about it, and I've made great intentions of becoming more affirming And for a while, I can do quite well. But I'm a terrible backslider. And after a while, I forget my good intentions. And then she'll say something like, so how did my sermon go this morning? And instead of telling her the three best aspects of her sermon, followed by perhaps one or two learning points, I dive straight in with the learning points. And uh, I've blown it. And my next journal entry is probably a kind of paraphrase of Psalm 51. Oh God, how can I be so stupid? Of course, people famously do this kind of thing with New Year's resolutions, which have all but disappeared by the end of January. But often we genuinely determine to do something that's really worthwhile. Maybe we commit to a new time of daily prayer. Maybe we commit to reading so much Bible every day. Maybe we give up something that we know isn't good for us. Or maybe we take up a diet or start doing some exercise. Or maybe we kind of commit to visit our elderly parents once a week. Whatever it is, we, do, we, we make these commitments. And the problem is, even though it's a really good thing to do, and even if we're quite excited about doing it, and even if it's quite life-enhancing, somehow, somewhere along the way, It gets undermined, and six months later we look back and it all seems like a distant memory. It's been utterly, we've been utterly defeated. So, can you relate to that? Does it sound familiar? Because this final chapter of Nehemiah speaks right into this problem. And what's more, the whole book of Nehemiah holds out some great clues that can help us to lead victorious lives instead of defeated ones. So, please keep your Bible open at page 498, where chapter 13 begins, because once again we'll be looking at a wider passage of Scripture than just what's printed in your service sheets. And just a very quick recap. Nehemiah was a descendant of the Israelites who'd been taken captive from Jerusalem and sent into exile in Babylon. He grew up in Susa, which is over to the east in modern-day Iran. And he heard about the disgraceful state of Jerusalem, his ancestral home, and he felt called by God to go and ask the king if he could travel to Jerusalem to restore the city. He makes the long journey. He inspects the broken walls and the buildings. He enlists all the Jewish people um, to, uh, to help him repair it. And then he... When the walls are complete, he sets about leading a spiritual renewal, which begins with the public reading of Scripture and results in a national time of repentance and prayer and a return to holy living and recommitment to the God of Israel. And last week, if you remember, 
We heard about the wonderful time of public worship and celebration and praise as the choirs and the musicians all went up on the walls and and paraded around and the whole city were, were singing songs of worship, giving praise to God for restoring the city, which is now being repopulated and experiencing a time of renewal and growth. And it's a story which up to last week seems to be drawing to a happy ever after conclusion. But this is no fairy story. And human beings are prone to backsliding. And in the very last chapter of Nehemiah, despite all the gains, all of the joy, all of the celebration, and all the commitments made to God by his people, after Nehemiah leaves Jerusalem and returns to Susa, no doubt to report on the great progress to the king, the wheels start coming off in Jerusalem. And things start to go wrong in every area of life in the rebuilt city. In the worship life of the temple, in the commercial life of the city, and in the family life of the people. So, if we look at chapter 13, verse 4, where Kirsty started reading, it says, he notes that Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God, He was closely associated with Tobiah and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and the incense and temple articles and the tithes and the grain, the new wine, the olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. In other words, Eliashib, the priest, had turned over an area of the temple dedicated to worship to this man Tobiah. And we learn later that he was just storing household goods. I suppose it would be something like the equivalent of taking out all of these lovely musical instruments, removing the organ, taking out the chairs, and just turning over the space for someone to store commercial goods in it. What's more, we read in verse 10 that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them. And this was the offering, the regular offering, which was expected of everyone to give toward the upkeep of the priests of the temple. And so as a result, all of the worship leaders and the priests, they'd gone back to their fields because they had to grow something to survive on because the people had stopped contributing, which is equivalent to everybody at St. Matthew's stopping their monthly giving, and I'd have to go and find a job somewhere else. So please don't do that. In short, the worship life of Jerusalem had come to a complete standstill. Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem and he is not happy with what he finds. We read in verse 8 that after he returns to Jerusalem and finds all this going on, he threw all Tobiah's goods out of the temple, purified the rooms and started putting all the equipment for worship back into the temple. Verse 11, he then rebukes the officials and tells them to get back to their posts And then in verse 12 and 13, we see that he reinstates the giving of offerings for the worship leaders. But having sorted out the poor performance in the temple, Nehemiah now turns his eye on the commercial life of the city. And what he finds is that materialism has become a higher priority than obedience to God's word. Because we read in verse 15 that he sees them treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem 
on the Sabbath. And so the Sabbath, which was God's holy day of rest, had been overtaken by the commercialization of Jerusalem. It had just turned into another working day like any other. Interesting parallels with today. Do you know that if you go today, if you go to the Outer Hebrides, if you go to the island of Lewis, it's the most northern and the largest of the Outer Hebrides. Do you know, when we visited there a few years ago, we met um, some recent arrivals to Lewis. They'd been living there about two years. And they told us that people don't even put their washing out on a Sunday. They don't mow the lawn on a Sunday. Sunday is completely given over to the worship of God and a day of rest. And we love it, they said. We love it. There was an amazing spiritual revival in Lewis in the early 1950s, and it's been a place really devoted to God ever since. Nehemiah writes in verse 17, I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what the, sorry, what is this wicked thing you are doing desecrating the Sabbath day? So, the worship life and the commercial life has, in the years that Nehemiah has been away, slid back into a culture of materialism and growing secularization. In other words, no one is putting God first. Can it get any worse? Well, sadly, yes. Because the next thing Nehemiah turns to is the family life of the population. And in verse 23, Nehemiah writes, Moreover, in those days... I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of the children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. Now, perhaps in our current culture, it's hard to understand why God's command to his people not to intermarry with foreign nations was a good and godly command. But here are one or two thoughts to put it in context. Firstly... The people who Nehemiah singled out, the people of Ashdod, Ammon and Moab, had been enemies who had tried to stop the wall being rebuilt and Jerusalem restored. But secondly, and I think more seriously from Nehemiah's viewpoint, the Israelite history was littered with the terrible consequences of what had happened when they had done this in the past. In particular that those other cultures had led them away from the Lord to worship the gods of the Ammonites and the Moabites who practiced detestable things like child sacrifice, among others. In verse 26, Nehemiah reminds them, was it not because of the marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? And he reminds them of the terrible consequences of that, which ultimately, ultimately led to the, to the exile. The bottom line was that when Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem to see how things were going, he found that his fellow Jews who had made all these wonderful commitments to God in worship and prayer and joy and celebration after the wall had been rebuilt were now utterly forsaking the God whom they'd given all the glory to a few years earlier. And how like them we can be. God created us. God loves us. He wants the very best for us. He picked us up out of the mire of sin. He sent his son Jesus who died for us on the cross, brought us forgiveness 
and salvation and restored our lives. And yet, how easily can we, like those Israelites, forget him or at least sideline him to a nodding acquaintance? Thank you for saving me. I can now get on with the rest of my life on my terms, the way I want. It's so easily done. Do you know, the Apostle Peter had a terrible time of of backsliding. As the threat of persecution or, or even death ramped up in the hours before the crucifixion, Peter began falling away from Jesus. It started with failure to pray. He and two others had been asked by Jesus to pray for him, with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. But they failed. They simply fell asleep. And as Jesus was led away to face the courts, Peter, we're told, followed, but at a distance. He was already drawing away. He was already disassociating himself from Jesus. And then came his worst moment of all, when he lied three times and utterly disowned Jesus. I don't know him. Don't know who you're talking about. The disciple who had said, even if everybody else falls away, I will not, was utterly defeated. And the New Testament church wasn't immune from backsliding as well. In the letter from John, which we call Revelation, the aging pastor challenges the seven churches in Asia Minor in the different ways that they have slipped back from their interworldly ways. The Ephesians have forgotten the love they had at first and are in peril of losing the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The Thyatirans are tolerating an immoral and false prophet called Jezebel, who is leading them astray. The Laodiceans are no longer on fire for Jesus. They are just lukewarm and in danger of losing his blessing. And you you may be here this morning and thinking, yes, you know, that's me. I've lost my first love, or I've become lukewarm, or I'm tolerating a situation in my life which is harmful to me. You may have realized some time ago that, that like Peter, you have, by how you speak and act at work, denied Christ on many more than three occasions. Or you might just be holding back at a distance from Jesus because it's dangerous to be around him. He might ask you to do something which would move you way out of your comfort zone. And yet the Apostle Paul implores us, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's that verse again, three weeks in a row. Perhaps God's trying to say something to us through it. And just as Jesus rebuked Peter and those New Testament churches. So Nehemiah rebukes his fellow Israelites. And the reason for those rebukes is because of the love they have for them. And the reason that this backsliding is written about in the Bible is not to show us how angry God is, but to show us how much he loves us. Because after the rebuke comes the restoration. After the sin is acknowledged comes the forgiveness. After the remorse comes the rebuilt relationship. Nehemiah gets the Israelites back on track. Jesus restores Peter on the shores of Lake Galilee. And then he finishes his rebuke 
to the seven churches of Asia Minor with these words. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And in the first century Middle East, being invited in for a meal was a clear sign of right relationship, restored relationship or friendship. He's inviting us all to turn back to him. As Adam said, to become friends. But how can we be a Nehemiah rather than a backslider? How can we be on fire instead of lukewarm? How can we be close and intimate with Jesus and not follow at a distance? Well, I think there are four attitudes. I'm just going to finish with these. Four attitudes of Nehemiah that I think were crucial. And the first was that Nehemiah... Could you just... uh, my, My slide changer isn't going on. If you just hit the down arrow three times, I think. Okay. If you could just flick on. No. Okay, don't worry if it's not if it's not coming. Okay. The first attitude is that Nehemiah was earnest in prayer. There are so many prayers written down in the book of Nehemiah. He prayed about everything. When he was afraid in front of the king, he prayed. When his enemies came against him in Jerusalem, he prayed. When his people forgot what he taught them and turned away from God, he prayed. When things went well, he prayed. To Nehemiah, praying was like breathing. How our lives would change if we could follow his lead. Secondly, Nehemiah treasured a deep personal faith. We see particularly in the last chapter, after all that Nehemiah had been through, when he enters his prayer room, he addresses the Lord not simply as Israel's God, but as my God. Four times in verses 14, 22, 29 and 31, he calls out those words, my God, reflecting an intimate relationship with his heavenly Father. That's the place we want to get to in our walk with Jesus. And although we must never invent a false Jesus, what we all need to have is our Jesus, our God. We don't want to be following at a distance. Thirdly, Nehemiah was dependent on grace alone. It can be easy to think that a man who had, was such a hands-on leader, such a practical organiser and such a hard worker might be trying to impress God by his actions. But in verse 22, he prays, Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me, not according to all he done, but according to your great love. He knows that God's mercy is not dependent on what we do, but on God's great love. And that is grace. And finally, Nehemiah keeps an eternal perspective on human life. In other words, he knows and believes that our decisions matter, that our lives have meaning, they're important to God, and that what we do with them will have eternal consequences. And in his prayers in this last chapter, he prays that God will both remember his faithful acts, verse 14, as well as not forget those who defiled the temple worship, verse 29. 
He understands that humans are responsible for their decisions and that God will hold us accountable. And so it is in many ways fitting that we finish our series on Nehemiah in this Advent season. A time of reflection when we ask ourselves, am I drawing closer to Jesus or am I following at a distance? Have I lost the love I had at first? Or am I tolerating things in my life which are getting between me and God? And Nehemiah is a great reminder that the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the God who loves us, who comes after us, who never gives up, who even when we mess up, always wants us to open the door to him, even when we feel unworthy, who wants us to turn back to him, even when we've turned away who wants us to take responsibility for our lives and the decisions we make and to grow into being the people that he's always intended us to be. And I'd like to finish by just inviting you to pray a prayer of confession with me. I'm going to ask Andrew to put the prayer of confession up on the screen because I think it's a fitting response to this chapter on Nehemiah, calling us back to God, calling us back into relationship with him. And so let's speak to God and say together, God, our Father, we come to you in sorrow for our sins, for turning away from you and ignoring your will for our lives for behaving just as we wish, without thinking of you, for failing you by what we do and think and say, for letting ourselves be distracted by the world around us. Father, forgive us, save us and help us. For Jesus Christ's sake. Amen.